You're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast about religion and public life, sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student here at ICS. On Critical Faith, we'll explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We'll hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component of so many of our lives. Along the way, we'll also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities, and communities. In the coming weeks, we'll have a mix of episodes, hosts, themes, and things like that, but this week, we're coming out strong with some technical but helpful research from Neil DeRue, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta. Neil has spent a career working on a philosophical movement called phenomenology. We'll let Neil tell you a little bit more about that later, but for now, let's just say phenomenology is a really careful way of philosophically getting in touch with our everyday experiences. What you'll hear specifically is from a faith and scholarship seminar hosted at ICS. We broke that seminar down into three parts, because sitting and listening to something for two hours is kind of a long time. So in this first episode, Neil will give his talk, and you can let that sink in a little bit. In the next episode, I'll interview Neil to try to pull out some of the features of his talk and his work more generally, so if this one seems a little bit heady, don't worry, we'll work out some of that stuff later on. Thankfully, Neil has a pretty contagious attitude of fun about philosophy, so maybe that will help. After that, we'll have a final episode where Neil takes questions from the audience. It's a pretty close room, so you'll hear some coughing and shifting from time to time, but just imagine that you're sitting with us here on a fall Toronto day where everybody's starting to get a cold. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a really helpful thing for podcasts just starting out. It helps people to find us, and it also helps us to kind of stay relevant in internet searches and that kind of a thing. You can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. My name is uh, Bob Sweetman, and I teach here at the Institute for Christian Studies, uh, if anyone doesn't know that, um, and, uh, and am the at least titular organizer of a, an annual series of kind of seminary, workshoppy conversations that we call uh, Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship. Uh, and we use it as a, you know, as a, as a, as a way to take advantage of... Um, uh, people like Neil Tarrou who are, are com- coming through, and so um, we're doing that again today. Uh, so this comes under the rubric of uh, uh, scripture, faith, and scholarship, where we ask scholars to think about, you know, how do they triangulate this? Their lives as scholars, uh, their lives as Christians, and therefore uh, um, busy with and um, uh, in relation with scripture as a, as a way to, you know, as a way to God and, um, and as persons of faith. So how does that all go together? Um, and then we say, whatever you want to do, I mean, that's the sort of general rubric, but whatever you want to do, let's have a conversation. 
So Neil DeRue is with us today. He's going to be our scripture, faith, and scholarship person on the hot seat, if I may put it that way. Uh, he comes to us from the King's University in, in Edmonton, Alberta. It's, um, I would say, uh, one of our uh, spiritual cousins, uh, the Institute for Christian Studies spiritual cousins. Um, he is also an alumnus of the Institute. He studied uh, with uh, Jim, Jim Oldheis over there. Uh, not the guy in the back, but the guy here. And, uh, and then from there, from here, went to um, Boston College where he studied with Richard Carney and wrote a thesis uh, that has subsequently been published by Fordham University Press called Futurity and Phenomenology. He presently holds the Canada Chair in Phenomenology and Philosophy of Religion in the Philosophy Department at uh, the King's University, and we're tickled pink to have him here. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Um, yeah, so I'm going to sort of read a paper. Hopefully I won't just read it. I'll try to talk about talk sort of through it and explain some parts here and there that need explaining. Um, but if I don't, I, I learned about myself, if I don't have something written down, I just talk for a really long time. And so I'm much more concise when I'm reading. So if I, if I move to reading, I apologize. I hope I'll do it interestingly, but otherwise I'll be here all day. Um, and I know there's an interview part that's going to come later and some other parts that are more conversational. I want to make sure I leave a lot of time for that. So that's why I'm just sort of trying to work my way through this as quickly as we can. Uh, and then we'll, we'll move to some of the other parts. Um, so... What I want to talk to you about today, in general, is uh, something I'm working on right now. It's I'm calling it sort of material spirituality, uh, trying to work through the relationship between material stuff and spirituality and divine spirituality in relation to these things and sort of figure out how these parts move together. Um, and so what I'll do in the paper is, is um, first I'm going to sort of, I'm trying to lay out the, the philosophical or the phenomenological framework for this account of, of material spirituality that I'm working on. Um, and so I'm going to do that. The first few parts of the paper, I'm going to draw on especially Husserl, uh, the founder of phenomenology, on his accounts of both expression. First, I'll work through expression really quickly, uh, and then his later account of spirit, spirit or spirituality, uh, again, very quickly through both of those, kind of just picking out some of the highlights, or these are some of the parts I'm working with. Um, I cut out a lot of the exegesis of his text. We can get into that later in the question and answer if you really want to do that, but I, when I talk in public, I run on the assumption that no one cares about Husserl, so I try to cut those parts <laughs> down. Um, if I'm wrong about that, then let me know, and I'll, I'll be happy to fill those parts back in, but in general, he's not a sexy topic, so I, I'll keep those parts low. I'll try to get through that relatively quickly. Kind of These are the main points, and then I'm going to talk about it um, in relation to and then I'm going to try to tease out the implications of sort of what I'm working on. So the, the one I'll spend the most time on is in terms of um, liturgy and how we should think about liturgy, especially in light of sort of contemporary philosophy of religion discussions of liturgy. So, and I'll, I'll get into that in terms of, so I'm thinking especially someone like Jamie Smith and his attempt to sort of read all of life as sort of liturgical in some broad sense. He talks about the liturgy of the mall or of the iPhone and these kinds of things. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and, and, and how my work kind of, what I'm trying to develop here fits in with that, sort of those parameters of the current conversation. And then I'll end by just really briefly sort of pointing to and highlighting where I think some future philosophical work needs to be done to continue developing this idea. Okay, And then, then I'll... Then I'll stop and we'll open it up to some conversation. So, um, so yeah, first I'll talk about expression. So in his, early in his logical investigations, Husserl makes what he calls an essential distinction between expression and indication. And put quite simply, and Derrida quotes this later, uh, the distinction can be really quickly summarized like this. Expressions mean 
and indications point. So a piece of fabric with, with two red bars on the side and a red maple leaf in the middle indicates or points to the existence of a country called Canada, for example. So this is sort of pointing to something else is the, the, the central function of indication. Expressions, on the other hand, are, and this is a quote from, from Husserl, are phenomenally one with the experience made manifest in them in the consciousness of the person who manifests them, end quote. So this act of constituting a phenomenal or an experienced unity vis-a-vis -vis the unity of judgment found in indications necessarily results in the existence of something that is, in and of itself, inherently meaningful or full of meaning. That is, meaning does not here merely attach to a separately existing physical substrate or a vehicle. Right? Rather, the meaning is one with the expression which expresses it. The expression can be called an expression, properly speaking, if and only if it constitutes a phenomenal unity with what is expressed. And so if I just use a, the most obvious example of expression is just language. And this is what Husserl talks about mostly in the logical investigation. So if we use, uh, let's say, you know, I'll use the sound since I don't have a blackboard to write on. And even if I did, that wouldn't do much on the podcast. So I'll, I'll, I'll use the sound, right? If I make the sound cat... Right? What you hear is a sound, but you don't really pay attention to the sound. When, what, you, you, what, what Hosro says, you live through the sound, but you live in the meaning that attaches to, the, to, the, to that sound cat. Right? And this is different from other sounds. I hear the sound of the wind blowing through the leaves, and that's a sound, but I don't look for meaning in that sound. That's non-expressive. Or even if I make a sound, if I, if I belch or something like that, I'm making a sound with my mouth, air is passing over my vocal cords, just like when I say cat, but you don't look for meaning in the belch and you look for meaning in the cat, right? And so there's something about that, that that's an expression. That's what we're trying to get at. What is happening in that kind of thing where you, you get a perception, right? You get a perception, but you don't live in the perception. You live through the perception to something else. That's what we're trying to sort of figure out with this notion of expression. So this, this unity in expression is characterized by two essential elements for Husserl. First, the elements of the unity are asymmetrical, as I was just talking about, right? The, the physical experience is lived through, but it's the enacting of the sense that's lived in. So that's the first, the first essential, right? It's this asymmetry. But, and secondly, this asymmetry is not experienced as asymmetrical, right? I don't experience A motivating me to live in B. I don't experience the sound and then say that sound makes me think of cat, right? I don't I don't have there's there's not two experiences. That that would be an indication. An indication is when I have one thing and it points to something else, right? In expression I don't have that, right? Um so I can separate an expression into its two elements later with reflection, right? It's not an ontological unity. It's not a logical unity. I can separate them with a later act of reflection, but in my experience, I don't, they, they, they come together as one. So taken together, these essential characteristics reveal that an expression is marked primarily by the change in intention by which the physical appearance is no longer taken merely in its perceptual, intuitive sense, but rather is taken to mean something. As such, expression is primarily not a thing, but a function. And this function alters neither the thing nor the perceiver directly, but rather it alters how the thing is presented to the intuition of the perceiver. In Husserl's words, and I quote, what constitutes the objects appearing remains unchanged, 
still a sound, but the intentional character of the experience alters, end quote, right? In other words, I do something different with it. This alteration of experience finds support in how the thing gives itself, but the essential nature of the experience of expression is found in the intention directed upon the word itself. And as such, expression is a function whose role is primarily intentional, affecting the relationship between things and the perceivers of those things. So we can summarize his account of expression then as the modification of the intentional relationship, that is the relationship between the, the person and the, the thing, broadly speaking. So a modification of that relationship in which a physical appearance is united with a sense or a meaning such that the sense is intuited in and through the appearance itself, though later reflection is able to distinguish the, the, the meaning and the, the physical experience. So expression is the intentional shift whereby my intention is directed not as the object appearing, but at the sense that is presented with or in the object appearing. This intention occurs immediately in the intuitive presentation of the object and decidedly not as a distinct intuition, requiring a distinct or a second act of fulfilling or illustrative intuition. That is, there's not a perception intention that leads to a different meaning intention. That would be an indication. In expression, the two are given as one. They come together. Okay, so second, uh, moving to Husserl's notion of spiritual. This notion of expression if not always the explicit terminology, remains central to Husserl's entire phenomenological project. We can talk about that more later if anyone's interested in that. I've got another other work I do to sort of make that claim. But I, this notion of expression, I want to argue, is what phenomenology is all about, arising already out of Husserl's debate with Frege. This is the, the core of what phenomenology is. And this notion of expression reaches its zenith, I would argue, in Husserl's invocation of spirit in his later work. In the Vienna lecture, for example, spirit... Is, referred, is used to refer to the life, accomplishments, and products of human living. Such spirit, is a very German way of using spirit or geist, such spirit is therefore personal, insofar as it pertains to persons, and communal. So for Husserl, quote, personal life means living communalized as I and we within a community horizon. End quote. Uh, right? That is part of this community horizon is part of a surrounding world in which we as humans always live. Such a surrounding world is the locus of all our cares and endeavors, Husserl says, and as such is a spiritual structure in us and in our historical life. So Husserl summarizes this account of spirit by referring to it as what he calls a vital presentiment. And this highlights two key elements of this account of spirit. Right, so first, Spirit is essentially living. That is, it is tied to life. And life has a very complicated thing it does in phenomenology. People like Michel Henry and Derrida and others have tried to explain this, right? But at the very least, what this means is spirit is a dynamic force and not merely a concept, a position, or a goal. Spirit is affective and not merely effected. Right? It affects things, it does things, it changes things. It moves people, shaping the very way they engage with the world around them in profound and innumerable ways, while at the same time being constituted in or by the world or the surrounding worlds in which it finds itself. So this is the vital part of spirit as a vital presentiment. Second, the second part, presentiment. In calling spirit a presentiment, 
Hosro means much more than that it just causes us to feel a certain way. Rather, building on the notion of horizons already mentioned, Hosro's invocation of presentiment here is meant to indicate that spirit provides the very basis of sense itself. Uh, again, later if you want we can go into details in terms of Husserl's epistemology and how this all works, but I'll just summarize it quickly here. As such, spirit functions pre-objectively, uh, the Gegenstandlichkeit in, in, in Husserl, as a, as a precondition of rational or theoretical thought. It is more felt than thought, more a product of passive than of active synthesis. Spirit, then, is an active and dynamic force that shapes how we bring the world to intuition. Okay, that's what he means by spirit. It's something that shapes how the world appears to us in, a, in, a, in an active and a dynamic and a pre-rational way. Uh, one could also say, right, in line with this, one could say that it shapes our imagination, as Jamie Smith would talk about it. It shapes our social imaginary, as Charles Taylor would talk about it. Or it shapes our plausibility structures, as a slightly later Charles Taylor would talk about it, in such a way as to make experience possible. This possibility of experience always occurs within a horizon of expectations that's operative in any and all experience. Right? All of our experience is based in sort of we have these basic horizons of expectation. Husserl talks a lot about this, and that's how we make sense of the world. We expect something to come, and then it comes, and it's fulfilled, and we meet. We Okay, that's a thing. Or we expect something to come, and it doesn't come, and then we're surprised, and that's why we're surprised, and these sorts of things. Uh, without such prefigured expectations, experience would simply not be possible. So in summary, to speak of spirituality here is to claim that there's a vital and a dynamic force that shapes our pre-theoretical horizons in a way that's necessary for experience itself, but of which we may not be consciously aware even as we are being guided by it. All right, so now I'm going to move to, in part three, to sort of what I want to do with some of these things. Um, so this notion of spirituality as shaping how we experience the world has some obvious resonances with the notion of worldview that's prevalent in a lot of the Christian philosophical discourse of the last few decades. So as I said, in this first part, I want to interact with some of these ideas and sort of, sort of Christian philosophy kind of where it's, where it's at in contemporary, contemporary thought. So where I think invoking spirit is helpful in regards to this conversation is to return the emphasis to the dynamic nature of these spirits or of these worldviews, and we'll separate those a little bit in a minute, Right? And by dynamic, I don't just mean that they're changing or that they're changeable, but that I mean right, that, that this is a, a force in Deleuze's sense rather than merely concepts or things I think. Right? That is, spirit helps us remember that our horizons are shaped by factors that are pre-rational or supra-rational, if you prefer the Dewey-Wierdian terminology. Much of the contemporary return to liturgy and philosophy of religion, and again, I'm thinking here especially of Jamie Smith and the Cultural uh, Liturgies Trilogy, uh, is, it seems to me, premised on something like this account. So remembering these supra-rational factors can help us make sense of the distinction between spirituality and religion. This, this is what I want to talk about. Where the latter, religion, uh, at least how I'm going to use it post-Kant, Right, religion is sort of, in some way, shape, or form, trying to play within the bounds of reason alone. Right, and what I mean is, where you see this is, in some philosophers of religion, but especially more so in in sort of religious practice. Right, most religious people in the West, at least post Kant, right, think of when they ask them what does it mean to be religious, and they'll say it is primarily about having certain beliefs, is to believe certain things specifically, as Charles Taylor would say to have beliefs about 
transcendent realities, realities that are outside the world. That is what it means to be religious for a lot of religious people. Um, and so I want to separate that notion of religious from, from spirituality. This distinction between spirituality and religion is not between opposites, but rather is best understood perhaps as that between something like a motivation and that which it motivates, between a driving force and the bodies or entities that it acts upon. So we can understand spirituality, and for that matter religion this way, only if we ensure both the unity of and the difference between the two elements of expression. That is, what I want to say is religion is an expression of spirituality in the way that I was talking about expression earlier. Uh, but to do that, I've got to be able to sort of show that there are two things in this expression that are in this kind of asymmetrical relationship that I was talking about before. And so I, I think spiritual expression goes wrong when the sign, when the physical thing, ceases to motivate in me that change in intention from the perceptual sense to the sense or the meaning intention. So this can happen in one of two ways. Either, right, this expression, spiritual expression fails, either A, when we treat the sign as merely perceptual stuff, and so we cease looking for any meaning whatsoever in what is expressed. That's sort of failure one. And, and second, when we treat the sign as being ontologically or logically one with what is expressed and not just phenomenally one. Right? When we think that's actually the same thing. Spirituality and religion just are the same thing. Right? That's, that will be sort of failure too. I'll get into that. So religiously, we can see both of these sort of failures in expression operating in contemporary Christianity. In the first case, so when the sign is just perceptual stuff and doesn't motivate in us a search for meaning, uh, in the first case, we split our world into religious and non-religious elements. So we have a sort of a spiritual life and an everyday life. And we claim that whole parts of our lives, the everyday life part, are simply religiously insignificant. They're not religious. They're not bad. They're not good. They're just, they're just there. So while praying, reading the Bible, and going to church are religious elements, and so too it seems is sexual morality, many everyday practices are viewed merely as things we do. I go to work, I drive my car to, work, to get to work, I, right? I, I talk to people on the street, or I don't talk to people on the street, how, right? Whatever it is, these are just things that I do. They're not Jesus things, they're not not Jesus things, they're just things. Um, so Smith's work on cultural liturgies is meant to undermine this type of dualism, right? But the detour through expression can help us see, I think, that for this work to be effective, we first have to help people see the spiritual significance of what may not seem overly religious. And to do this, we have to first show that mundane and material practices are always inherently spiritual because they are always spiritually expressive. If the material world is simply what it is, if it's just stuff, so to speak, with no essential connection to anything beyond itself, it can never be experienced as spiritually expressive. At most, it can be spiritually indicative, that is, requiring a secondary act of judgment to make the move from the physical practice to the spirituality it indicates. And this, I think, honestly, is where a lot of uh, Christian worldview talk sort of ends up, right? And what you need is something, you have a physical practice, and then you need a second act of judgment that we'll call a Christian perspective, that gets me from the material practice to the spirituality or to the actual religious part. Right? This becomes religious when I add a certain perspective on it. Um, 
And so it, if it's important, right? So oh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Right? The account of material spirituality being proposed can help with this by showing the material stuff is always inherently expressive of something deeper than just stuff. And if it is important that religion recognize this connection between materiality and spirituality, then philosophers of religion must clearly elucidate precisely how material spirituality can be conceived as a unity and not as a juxtaposition of terms. This is, I think, the problem, is we think of materiality and spirituality as opposites, at best a juxtaposition, and not as things that can work together. And that's sort of what I'm saying. We have to to figure out how to do that. Um, The point is not merely a philosophical one, however. A view of material spirituality suggests that a primary task of traditional religious communities is to help their constituents see that particular sets of actions are expressive of a deeper spirituality. What you do matters spiritually or matters religiously. Um, In regards to the contemporary concern with liturgy, this more practical religious question leads to two further questions, right? That is, uh, we're sort of, as as Jamie Smith and others are trying to sort of reenact liturgy to help us see that everything we do is is spiritually expressive, right? It leads to, to two really sort of practical questions, right? The first of which is, which particular sets of actions are to be construed as spiritually expressive, right? What things count as liturgies? What things count as religious? And second, what makes them that? What makes them religious? What makes them liturgies? An account of material spirituality suggests that anything and everything in the life world, anything that's engaged in the project of human living broadly construed, is thereby spiritually expressive. And it is such merely by virtue of its being engaged in the project of human living. Insofar as spirit is at work, that in which it is at work is spiritually expressive. Something does not have to be explicitly religious in the sense of pertaining directly to a sort of standard religious tradition to be spiritually expressive. Nor does something have to be artistic to be spiritually expressive and therefore liturgical. This is not to say that religious things or artistic things are not spiritually expressive, but merely that they are neither more nor less spiritually expressive than, say, economic exchange or recreation or any other thing that we're doing. So the whole gamut of human living is the field of application for spirituality, not some confined parts therein. And because of this wide application, a materially spiritual account of religion is well positioned to consider certain things as religious that might otherwise not be considered to be so. So thinking of spirituality in this fashion rather than either pietistic fashions where spirituality is some sort of escape out of the material world to something else, or in supernatural fashion, something like Frank Peretti, um, right, where spirituality is sort of another world that engages with this world, but from a, right, angels and demons and this kind of thing engaging in this sense, right? thinking of material or spirituality in a, in a distinct sense that I'm proposing opens the door, I want to argue, to reconsider something like spirits of the age as legitimately religious concerns. So today, uh, sort of, this is why, uh, today, something like consumerism is, I think, almost inarguably the dominant spirit of North American culture. But most religious practitioners, at least, would not feel the need to choose between their religious faith and consumerism. That is, Most religious practitioners, I think, would feel comfortable 
describing themselves as both Christian and a consumer in a way that they would not feel comfortable claiming to be both, let's say, Christian and Muslim. Right? And I think that's because they fail to see the religious element at work in consumerism. Right? I can't be Christian and Muslim because those are competing religions. I can be Christian and consumer because they're not. But I want to argue they actually they are. Right? I've, I'm not the only one. Bill Kavanaugh, there's lots of people arguing about sort of the, the religious nature of, of um, consumerism. In large part, this, this failure to see the religious element of consumerism can be, can be attributed to the equation of liturgy in the sense of elements of a religious worship service with a spiritually expressive practice. In order to recover the genuinely expressive nature of liturgy, we need to clarify between two different uses of liturgy. So I'm going to try to keep these separate as I move forward here. Right? So first, what I'm just going to, because I'm horribly, horribly unimaginative and uncreative, I'm going to define these as liturgy one and liturgy two. I just, I'm bad. I'm sorry. I'm bad at thinking of clever names. Right. So by liturgy one, I'm going to mean specifically elements of a worship or a church service. Right. There's a liturgy in the first sense that we talk about it. Right. You've got your call to confession. You've got your right. Whatever the opening, all those kinds of things. Right. These are liturgical elements in the sense of elements of a worship service. And second, liturgy two. By liturgy two, I'm going to mean any spiritually expressive practice whatsoever. And here, so in liturgy two would be where like Smith's analysis of the liturgy of the mall or the liturgy of the iPhone, right? These would be in the sense of spiritually expressive practices, I think. So for a long time, liturgy one was seen as the dominant and perhaps the only way that the Holy Spirit was expressed. And this has led us to lose the distinction between liturgy one and what it expresses. We have come to treat liturgy in the sense of elements of a worship service and spiritual expression as logically one rather than just phenomenally one. So this goes back to that second failure of spiritual expression outlined above. And its religious implications are large. By equating liturgy one, elements of a worship service, with spiritual expression, we've lost the sense that not all spiritual expression is liturgy, is liturgy one. Right? And this has led to the problem outlined above that only some practices are taken as spiritually expressive while others, the non-liturgical ones, the non-churchy ones, are spiritually inert. And I fear that the ongoing use of liturgy to mean any spiritually expressive practice, so liturgy in the liturgy two sense, will threaten to ultimately undermine the point many of its users want to make and will end up getting lost in a more narrowly construed understanding of liturgy, worship, and ultimately, of religion itself. This is the danger, right? I think we use the liturgy language and we're trying to expand it to help people see that there's more to spirituality than maybe they, they initially thought. But the, the, the danger of trying to use a word in a different way is that the connotations the word has for people don't change that quickly. Right. Um, so this is the danger. Right. I mean, there's a there's a benefit to using that terminology, but there's a danger, too. Um, so that there's there certainly needs to be a connection between everyday action and deep spirituality. Right. I, that in that part, I'm totally in agreement. But I'm not sure that connection is best called liturgy, at least in our contemporary Protestant Christianity. We can talk later about if that if the same problem holds in Catholics or not. Dean, you and I can talk about that later. Um, so for many Christians, at least Protestant Christians, as noted above, liturgy is simply synonymous with elements of a worship service. That's what liturgy means. Right? You ask most Christians, 
hey, I'm doing a liturgy, and they're going to think, okay, you're working on a worship service. Hence, to call for liturgy as the means of connected everyday action, of connecting everyday actions with deep spirituality is simply to say for many people that it's through particular acts of Christian worship that we make our life meaningful. This seems to insert another act, another judgment of some kind, even if it is one that we take up passively as a sedimented part of our communal horizon, but it inserts this other act of judgment between our experience of the thing and that thing's spiritual meaningfulness, right? I need some recourse through church stuff to make this either a spiritually positive experience or a spiritually negative experience. That is, the thing or experience under consideration is taken as spiritually significant only because of its relation, however convoluted, to some particular liturgical practice in the sense of Liturgy 1, and not because it itself is spiritually expressive. This seems to privilege the religious, in sort of a traditional sense, over the spiritual, and so undermines the spiritual and ultimately, I think, also the religious nature of all practices and threatens to reintroduce precisely the type of dualism that this liturgical approach to religion seems meant to counter. And to be fair, I don't think this is a problem with the people who are actually doing like this liturgy in the, philo in the philosophy of religion. Uh, I just think it, it, it threatens to be a problem in how it's going to get played out or how it gets communicated and talked about in sort of actual religious practical circles, right? Um, so I think the language of spirits of the age may in this sense prove more beneficial than liturgy language for the purpose of broadening our understanding of the scope of religion. First, it would help avoid the confusion of Liturgy 1 and Liturgy 2 outlined above. And second, it makes the connection to spirituality more explicit, thereby avoiding the possible misunderstanding of liturgy as religious formation with some kind of behaviorist determinism. Right? There's a really, I think it's a really bad, a really shallow reading of sort of what Jamie Smith is up to that sort of says his account of liturgical formation is just like some semi-complex version of behavioral determinism, right? We just need to do certain practices more often, and that will shape us in certain ways and give us certain habits that will then establish us in this, and, and as long as we do these practices more, we'll be shaped that way, and that's what it's really all about. And ironically, for Jamie from the Pentecostal background, like there's no actual spirituality at work anymore in that, right? It's just do X actions more often, and you will be shaped this way. Do Y actions, and you'll be shaped that way. Choose which determinism you want to go for, right? I don't think that's, I mean, I think that's a really, it's a bad reading of what Jamie's up to, but it's out there, right? And you'll hear this critique of it. Um, and I think the spirits, the spirituality language that I'm developing here will hopefully help avoid that, that particular problem or that particular reading, right? Because it's, it's not just about better habits making us better people. It's about cultivating particular forms of spirituality. Right? And I think that's true for Jamie and the liturgy language as much as anything. All right. So there's certainly a lot more implications we could trace out from this account of material spirituality. Uh, there are a myriad number of philosophical, cultural, and traditionally religious issues that could be examined differently through the lens of material spirituality. Uh, I want to take what little time I have left, and I'm almost done, to briefly suggest the, the, the focus a little bit on the philosophical issues that I see as most pressing in the development of this account of material spirituality. So the first is a, is a needed clarification of the phenomenological understanding of expression and its ontological, epistemological, social, and political ramifications. We need to, if I'm going to talk about expression, we need to know what, what the heck I'm talking about. That seems fair. Right? Uh, so here a line has to, to do this, I think a line has to be drawn at least from Husserl to Merleau-Ponty and to Deleuze. 
Doing so will not only help us better understand the phenomenon of expression, but will also help us better understand the relation between meaning or sense, between, so between meaning and being, that's at, the st that's at stake in the conception of expression. That's sort of what conception expression is all about. In this regard, it should help us appreciate the epistemological significance of Deleuze, that is the importance of sense to expression, rather than just the metaphysical and political focus his work is often given. And this, in turn, will open the door to examine the extent to which Deleuze's metaphysical and political commitments might be able to be spiritually and religiously helpful. Second, as mentioned earlier, developing an account of material spirituality requires the development of an account of materiality that preserves the possibility of spiritually expressive material practices. And there are people already at work. There's a whole discussion in philosophy of religion right now. Uh, people like Clayton Crockett and Jeff Robbins are at the forefront of it, sort of talking about a new or a religious materialism or the new materialism, right? Trying to develop an account of materialism. That's not Richard Dawkins' account of materialism. This sort of, that's, that's thin and not that interesting, right? Let's, let's develop a, a, a better one. Um, and I think this would fall in line with those kinds of conversations. I think Doyweird's concept of the supernatural, that is as opposed to sort of he's got naturalism and supernaturalism and then you've got something in between, I think that might prove helpful in providing accounts of the relation between the material and the so-called immaterial. That's not simply juxtaposition, but a kind of a mutual intertwining. That's very Merleau-Ponty language. That provides a depth to materiality that is lacking in most forms of contemporary naturalism. I think similarly helpful... In this regard, might be Husserl's account of the superhistorical, which he develops especially in the crisis, Merleau-Ponty's account of the flesh, uh, Henri, Michel Henry's material phenomenology, and perhaps even Marion's recent reading of the body-soul relation in Descartes. Marion, I haven't read it. Marion has a new book, apparently, in which he sort of wants to say Descartes has a different view of the relationship between, between matter and soul than we usually give him credit for. I don't know if he's right, but... He's French, and they like to save Descartes, so we'll see if he can do it. Um, finally, and again, not unrelated to the preceding, is the further development of an account of the way in which affective forces operate in and upon material bodies. I think that's something also we have to sort of develop and, and, and think through a little bit more. It seems, it seems, at least to me, that such an account must engage seriously with Deleuze, and I think we... I mean, his, his sort of more famous works, the stuff he did with Guattari, or What is Philosophy, and Thousand Plateaus, and those kinds of things. But also, I think we shouldn't ignore his historical works, right? And especially, I'm thinking of Expressionism in Philosophy, Spinoza, and The Fold, which is about Leibniz and the Baroque, right, in, in doing this work. But I think, so I think we have to engage seriously with, with Deleuze, but I also think Doiweird's account of the dunamis of ground motives and its relation to the movements of time and supertemporality could also prove helpful in speaking to this problem of the relationship between affective forces and then the bodies on which they act. And I, I want to say this problem has been operative in at least continental philosophy of religion, at least since Derrida's foi-croyance distinction. And then Caputo makes a whole bunch out of that. And I think this way of would actually help unpack a lot of that and get past sort of the stalemate that's come into that conversation where Caputo wants to say we got to keep this distinction between, right, sort of, he uses them in different senses than I do, but, but sort of like the motivating impulse and then the institutions that come out of that impulse. And then other people saying, you're just trying to be Kant and separate this motivating impulse from any kind of history, right? And it's just like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. And like that says, like the debate sort of stuck, right? And I'm hoping that this can kind of move us past that to sort of say, let's talk about how it might actually work, right? If this is a thing, how would this thing actually act on material bodies? Can we lay that out a little bit more and see if that moves us forward somehow? 
Right, so the names mentioned in this section, Deleuze, Merleau-Ponty, Henri, and Doyaweird, have not really received a lot of attention in contemporary philosophy of religion. Deleuze and Henri get mentioned, like they, 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 they get talked about, so to be fair, they're, they're around, but they rarely, if ever, receive the type of sustained attention of, say, Derrida or Marion, or even Badieu, or something like this. Um, Merleau-Ponty and Doyaweird, on the other hand, are almost never mentioned at all. Now, one of those is a rather minor figure in the history of phenomenology, whose absence from the discourse makes some sense. But the other one is Merleau-Ponty, right? And he really should be there. Like, he's a pretty big figure. In, 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 and given that he's like the guy who's most famous for sort of the phenomenologist of embodiment, right? His absence from the philosophy of religion literature may be telling for why we need to remind ourselves, it seems, of the importance of the material and the embodied for religion. As much as we've turned the liturgical turn, uh, trying to sort of recapture the, the importance of materiality or sort of the new materialism that I was talking about, either way, like there's a lot of trying to sort of recover, like, hey, material stuff is really important for religion, and but we're still not talking about Merleau-Ponty. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like that seems like a big figure to skip over in the whole phenomenology part. If we're to remedy this lack, I think we must set our sights on some account of material spirituality. And I think this will happen at least in part through increased attention given to the work of Deleuze, Merleau-Ponty, Henri, and Doyweird. Thanks. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you're not reeling too much from all that phenomenology, but if you are, don't worry, we've got another episode coming that will hopefully help put some of those things together. Be on the lookout for that episode soon, and in the meantime, head over to iTunes and give us a review. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook at the Institute for Christian Studies, and on Twitter at INSCHR, I-N-S-C-H-R. See you then!